The law and order candidate in the New York City mayor's race appears to be the winner in the Democratic primary. He talked about combating gun violence, which we expect to hear with the Cleveland mayoral candidates. And we'll be talking about the Cleveland mayor's race today on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and our political analyst, Seth Richardson. Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. Have another beautiful week. Hope the weather holds out for the weekend and we get some nice weather for the days off. Let's start. Has the anti-vaccination bill that made Ohio the butt of many jokes and much ridicule met its well-deserved and timely end? Jane Coon, the answer is not quite yet. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if we're quite there yet, but it certainly has hit a snag. Yesterday, Laura Hancock talked to Representative Scott Lips, who's the chairman of the Ohio House Health Committee, and that's the committee vetting this bill. And he said there really weren't enough votes at this point to advance it, at least in its current form. So what he said was that the freshman lawmaker who's sponsoring the bill, uh, House Bill 248, Her name is uh, Jennifer Gross. She's going to listen to the concerns of her colleagues. And and she's also had a conversation with House Speaker Bob Cup about this. And the implication from Lips sort of was that, you know, Gross has to come, has had to come to the conclusion that she's she's not going to get her bill through without making some changes. And and she's got to, you know, have you know, understand the compromise involved in the legislative process. But to refresh people's memories, this bill would prohibit employers, including hospitals, from requiring their employees to be vaccinated or even inquiring about whether they have been. And it also would set up the system where schools have to notify parents in writing that they can exempt their children. And, you know, critics say this is just going to lead to a default of, of, you know, many parents not bothering to get their kids immunized and it's going to lead to, you know, spread of diseases that could be easily prevented. Um, The other piece of background here is that the health committee has held a bunch of hearings. And as you said, they allowed some supporters of this bill to testify and spread falsehoods about vaccines and even bizarre theories like the coronavirus vaccine is going to magnetize you and make forks stick to you and 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 uh, you're going to interact with cell towers and and stuff like that. We'll never forget that. We will never forget that. We always have to mention that. But I think it's really important to note it because I think that testimony combined with the fact that the committee finally heard from established medical experts, hospital people, and business people who laid out the problems with this bill, you know, that's what's sinking it, I think. But but, but that testimony is what brought it about. There's wackadoos out there that believe all this nonsense. And because we have this one party rule and they're drunk on power, ridiculous bills like this get proposed. I mean, you say she's she's going to talk about making changes. Really, the only change that'll work is erase the whole thing after the House <laughs> bill number, because this is this is not good public health policy. Anybody that regards science with any kind of respect knows we, we don't want to go this way. It'll endanger our children and it'll endanger society. Yet we're still talking about it. She's going to try and make it palatable, which means parts of this could still get through. That's frightening. Yeah. You know, um, 
the one thing that that Laura Hancock also pointed out in her story that I think is important to note here is that business people and other opponents of this are really they really form a core constituency for Republicans. So as much as they've allowed these fringe theories to be aired, they've got to listen to the you know mainstream their mainstream constituency here and and you know, listen to what they're saying about how bad this bill is. Yeah, I, let's let's hope that it just goes away. This is not going to be good. As, you know, we're heading into the fall where there is uh, some danger to children. They're unvaccinated. The virus keeps mutating, and there are people that are worried. We get to the fall, this thing will spread through kids, and we'll have another surge. And, and while that threat looms. We have legislators that want to erase any need for vaccinating children. It's Looney Tunes down in Columbus these days. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is Democratic President Joe Biden lining up with Republican Senator Rob Portman and Republican Congressman Dave Joyce to change a drug sentencing law that unfairly treats black defendants? Laura Johnston, we've been talking about this discrepancy in the law for years. It locked up a whole lot of black people who had the same amount of drugs as white people, but the black people went away for many more years. What's going on now? Yeah, they're looking to make this law a lot more fair. So this Anti-Drug Abuse Act dates back to 1986. It required that people convicted of uh, five grams of possessing five grams of crack cocaine get the same mandatory minimum prison sentence as someone who possessed 100 times that amount of powder cocaine. This was changed in 2010 to reduce the disparity from uh, to 18 to 1, from 100 to 1. But this seems blatantly racist, and the legislation that's supported by Portman and Joyce would eliminate this disparity altogether. The Biden-Harris administration supports this. They they want this to pass, and it's called the Eliminating a Quantifiably Unjust Application of the Law Act, or EQUAL. So that's the acronym for them. The substances are chemically the same, and there's no no evidence that there should be any difference. It's caused significant harm for decades, especially to people of color. And this sentencing disparity means that they get a lot longer sentences and they're in jail a whole lot more. Yeah, you can look at this as having developed in two ways. One, back in the early 90s, the mid-90s, street corners of, of every city in America erupted with drive-by shootings as crack dealers battled for supremacy in, in selling. The, 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 the HBO show, The Wire, really depicted that accurately. But there's also a thought that this was a racist move to penalize black people because the people that were arrested for crack often were largely black, while people were arrested for powder cocaine were largely white. And the difference in the sentencing, it was, it was just inexcusable. And what I still don't understand is, is this really came to the fore years ago. It still wasn't fixed. It's just what what is wrong with our lawmakers where they don't remove an obvious racial inequity? Even when they they made the reduction a few years ago, as you noted, it was still 18 to one. It's it's right. ridiculous. So finally, yeah, it, we have people ready to get rid of it. What it where do Portman and uh, and uh, Joyce come from on this? They're just they're looking at it because it's so unfair. Well, Joyce is coming from as a former prosecutor. He said there's no reason for these to be treated differently and that he's among the 32 sponsors in the House. I'm not exactly sure where Portman's coming from, but the idea is is hopefully they've got 
broad support now because the idea is to be as fair as possible. Um, Black Americans are six times more likely to be imprisoned on drug charges than white Americans, even though drug use is at similar rates between them. And some Black people with nonviolent offenses were getting the same uh, prison sentences as white people with violent offenses. So I think if you look at those facts, you're just like, okay, this makes no sense. We need to fix this. Well, and part of the what's going on here too, I hope, is that there's a recognition that drug addiction is a mental yes. health issue more than a crime. And Cuyahoga County is working very hard to build into a diversion program where if you sense addiction is causing somebody's bad behavior, you deal with the addiction instead of the symptom, which is the crime. So hopefully that's also part and parcel with this. Yeah, they, they talked about this in Sabrina Eaton's um, story. And what an interesting fact is that Biden's co-sponsored the legislation that set up that original 100 to 1 sentencing disparity. And now as a candidate for president, he said he was going to end it once and for all. So obviously people had different ideas back in the 80s about this. And I'm glad that people are can say, I changed my mind. This doesn't make any sense. Well, there was a, a huge wave of violence during mm -hmm. that period. We had a lot of homicides during those years that were the result of uh, the crack cocaine commerce. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What can the audience for Cleveland.com, The Plain Dealer, and This Week in the CLE, this podcast, expect in the coverage of the Cleveland mayor's race over the next few months? We have Seth Richardson here to answer that. It'll be his job to cover most of it. <laughs> yeah, I think they can expect quite a bit, hopefully, uh, from myself. I'm going to hold myself to a high standard. You know, we've got eight candidates in this race, which is, um, you know, and all of these candidates are pretty serious, right? It, there's there's not too many of the, uh, the, the kind of fringe folks who sort of glam on um, – somehow one way or another, some very serious candidates. And I, you know, what we want to do over the next couple of months is really get into kind of, um, you know, in-depth conversations and issues with each of these candidates so that everybody can have a clear, concise idea of, you know, what they're going to do on some really big issues in the city. We, you know, we, we've been talking about some of the issues uh, kind of, kind of behind the scenes, you know, we don't, I don't necessarily want to tip our hand or anything yet, but I think it's pretty safe to assume what some of those issues are obviously going to be, you know, crime probably being one of the big ones. And we really want to get a sense from each of these candidates, you know, okay, you can identify a problem, but we want to know what you're going to do about a problem. And I think the hope is that we'll get, we'll get everybody uh, in for some kind of big conversations and really just be able to release that to the public in kind of a, a raw format, so to speak. Um, and then allow them to kind of make at least a baseline decision on that as we continue with the coverage through, you know, some of the on the ground reporting and campaigning. I'm actually really excited about it. I think this is going to be a very hotly contested mayor's race. And I think there's going to be a lot of actual substance in this mayor's race. It's, you know, uh, maybe the most exciting election I'm going to I've covered since I've been here, honestly. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think we, we all of these candidates have have something to say, whether they're qualified or not. The voters will have to decide. But th this, there is substance. Uh, and while we're still firming up part of the, the plan you're describing, what we are thinking of doing is having a series of special episodes where we bring them on to this week in the CLE and ask them the questions so that you can hear their answers or their attempts to avoid answering your very own self. So look for that coming up. And Seth Richardson will be the key reporter throughout. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
What happened Tuesday with the proposal to let public officials accused of corruption and other crimes involving their offices move their trials to their home counties and potentially much friendlier juries? Jane Coon, we said when this first came up that it sounds like they're planning to commit crimes, because why else would you worry <laughs> about where you're going to be tried unless you're expecting to be tried, which means you're planning to break the law? That's the scariest part of this. It sounds like I, legislators are worried they're going to get caught. Yeah. You know, I, I've got to sort of take a deep breath before talking about this one. I mean, it's it's really hard to fathom that this is happening right in the middle of a federal investigation into what has been called the biggest bribery scheme in Ohio history perpetrated in the Ohio General Assembly. And we have lawmakers pushing a proposal through like this. Uh, luckily, this doesn't affect the federal case, but it's so blatantly political and and frankly, shameless, I think. And and Chris, one of your favorite objects of scorn, Representative Bill Seitz, is mm -hmm. behind this. Um, it's, it's a provision that he stuck into a civil justice bill that's called House Bill 286. And this provision would remove the Franklin County prosecutor's exclusive authority to try Ohio public corruption cases, and it would give the politicians who might be accused of corruption the option to just choose whether they want to be tried in their home counties, where, where as you said, they likely would face a friendlier prosecutor and jury. So, and I'm sure this is just merely a coincidence, but this measure was proposed just months after a Democrat was elected Franklin County prosecutor for the first time in nearly 60 years. And this is, of course, a Republican proposal. And all the Republicans went along with the legislation when it passed yesterday in the House Civil Justice Committee, nine to five, strictly along party lines. Of course, none of the Republicans chose to say publicly at this hearing, you know, why they think this is such a great thing. Uh, the Democrats, of course, were outraged and didn't hesitate to say so. Uh, Representative Dave Leland pointed out that this bill, if it's passed, would mark the only time in Ohio state law that a defendant would be given a choice of where to be prosecuted. The average person charged with a crime gets no such automatic privilege. And Leland said it's basically giving corrupt politicians a home court advantage. Um, you know, well, and, let, and let's talk about that. The reason that you're tried where the crime occurred is because you have committed a crime upon that community. Our whole system of justice is based on people answering for their crimes, answering to the community that they they cause their crime against. It, it, we don't have a system anywhere where you just ship a trial off to someplace else. This has never happened. It flies in the face of the whole design of our justice system. And again, why? Why would you do this unless you are expecting, if you're Bill Seitz, unless you're expecting you're going to be charged with crimes? Why, why would you make this radical, radical move, breaking with all precedent in the justice system, unless you see yourself in an orange jumpsuit? <laughs> well, he would say, and he said this in earlier comments, that he was inspired uh, to add this amendment by the case of... Uh, Rick Perry, the former Texas governor who was accused of wrongdoing in a, in a Democratic-leaning county, that would be Travis County, where the state capital is. And he was cleared of that, but 
but it resulted in the Texas legislature passing a law saying that ethics violations should be tried in the politician's home county. Okay. So that's okay. where he said he uh, was inspired by that. But the system worked. He was cleared. The system did mm-hmm. what it's supposed to do. It cleared him, even though he was tried there. I, I, that, that does not carry any water whatsoever. I, this one is a stunner. And I, I'm not surprised they kept their mouths shut because they know how preposterous this is. I just wonder, is there anything in the state constitution that would would block this? Because it, it does. Yeah, I don't know. Does. I mean, you know, you pointed out about, you know, moving a trial. Like, it's that part is not unprecedented because you could request a change of venue. And if the judicial system sees fit that there's like too much pretrial publicity or reasons like that, trials can be moved. But it's not just the defendant's choice to say, oh, I think I'd like to be tried in my hometown. And think about the bar, the high bar you have to to cross to get a trial moved. More times than not, people make that request and get rejected because the belief is that juries are ultimately fair. So it's we don't have a lot of change of venues. We really don't. Uh, And I'm this one. This is just one of those. I said it earlier in the podcast that that one party rule has has the Republicans in Columbus so drunk on power that they are doing shocking things now that that really you cannot justify. This do, is a bad Do you one. think the Senate will uh, will sign off on this? Because it appears next to be on its way to the House floor, and we'll have to see if they pass it. But assuming they do, uh, you know, the Republican senators right now are pretty busy stuffing all of their policy priorities into the state budget. But uh you know, we'll, we'll have to see if they there, have a look, stomach for this. The Senate could be a, a part of the checks and balances. The governor could veto it as a check and a balance. And then I imagine that there are some legal challenges that could be made. So maybe the Supreme Court of Ohio would be a check and a balance. But the, things are just out of control. What's happening this year with the budget and with, with Bill Seitz proposing nonsense like this, it just shows that we're careening out of control in a very unreasonable way in this state. We got to get the districts redrawn so that there's some more balance so that the, the, the middle of the road Ohioans, which are the bulk of the Ohioans, that their will is carried. Because right now it's the fringe yeah, crazies. That's that, another that, topic that we could go on and on about, Chris. <laughs> well, well, I think well, that's imagine. why they're doing it. I think that's where the charges are going to come from. They're probably going to go in a hotel room and break the law and redistricting. That's <laughs> hey, what they're preparing for. Th- this Richardson. is sad. just, yeah, imagine for a moment, like, take this law and take it out of Ohio, right? And imagine that you heard that somebody uh, somebody in Venezuela or somebody in Russia or somebody in you know Turkey or one of these you know kind of uh, uh, countries more associated with you know corruption and whatnot you know you heard about this law there like what would you think about that law you would you, I, exactly you would think it's a <laughs> it's a crazy place that has no law and order which is what we're doing in Ohio Bill Seitz has just been behind every bad thing that's come down the pike or, this or year for, or for that matter even like even not to take it overseas like imagine that you know you're a Republican in this state and you heard that in you know say California or New York or Illinois they were trying to do this where the Democrats are in control like what would you think? You know, it's yeah. it's yeah, know. It's, just, yeah. it's just out of control. You're listening to this week in the CLE. 
How is everyone's favorite theme park drawing from its long history to sell it celebrate its 150th birthday a year late? Laura Johnston, we don't talk about theme parks a lot on This Week in the CLE, but the history of this one is is kind of interesting. And some of the things that they're commemorating, I had no idea they were there and they sound interesting, too. Yeah, there's a parade and it's a 45 minute parade that's going to be happening at 845 every night at Cedar Point. Um, I've been there once a season, but there wasn't a parade then. So now I need to go back to see it. But we are talking about 150 years of history here from Picnic Grove in Lake Erie to, you know, their name is the Roller Coast. So there's there's a ton of stuff. They've got roller skaters on a float that like go around in a circle on um on a roller on a roller coaster float there's a steamship lookalike this is very different for the park it's longer and more elaborate than anything they've produced in the past 100 performers including singers dancers stilt walkers pogo stick jumpers trampoline acrobats and those roller rollerbladers so one of the kick- things that they're 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 trying to commemorate and i guess there'll be a visual for it they had a ride in the 20s that spun people out over lake erie close to the water it looks like the swings um at least from the parade it looks like but um but it was over the lake so now they have these super high swings and you are right up close to the lake which is one of the coolest things about cedar point but yeah you're not getting (laughs) right over the water anymore I wonder how many rides that they've created over the years that are closed. There were just so many they were mentioning in this that I'd never, I'd never heard of. And I've never right. been there, and so I'm not really want to talk about it. They repurpose a lot of them. You know, I, even the ones that they had new when I was in high school, it's like they don't all exist anymore or not in their original form. So they're constantly reinventing. So it is cool to take a look at the history and, you know, the old bathing costumes from the 20s and stuff. And and now it seems like they're full-fledged summer since they hired 2,500 new workers since that raised that that wage to $20 an hour last month. And now that hours are going to be back to normal all the way to 10 PM. And remember they were trying to do this 150th anniversary on their actual anniversary last year, but the pandemic got in the way. So they're trying to really do it up big this year. Why did they stop calling it the roller coast? That's kind of a cool thing. And oh, I think they sense. still call it a roller coast. Oh, do they? They still call that's, it that? Yeah. That's what comes over the PA when they're telling you to keep your arms and, and feet inside the vehicle at all times. <laughs> All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What insights could we take from the editorial board's endorsement interview for the 11th congressional seat? Seth Richardson, we had 12 of the 13 candidates in. It was a very stilted endorsement interview because there were so many of them. We didn't have normal give and take between the candidates we get. Some of the candidates were frustrated that we limited the time in their answers because we were trying to get to all of them. Not the best way to do this, but it did reveal a lot. And what it revealed, you found, was pretty weak. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, I've been watching all of these candidates for a while. And, you, you know, it, it just you, there's kind of been this like waiting, uh, like internal waiting where, you're, you know, you're saying, OK, Nina Turner is obviously a, a, a top flight candidate. And you expect that somebody is going to emerge to really be kind of the challenger to her. And every time I watch one of these, and it was especially apparent during the uh, the interview with the editorial board, which I want to note, I am not a member of. I have no bearing on any endorsement or anything like that. Um, it's just really apparent that she's kind of become, you know, she's sort of running away with this thing. Like it's, it's pretty, you know, she's she's garnering endorsements. And every time, you know, you see these candidates in public, um, it's not even necessarily that Nina Turner is 
you know, blowing everybody away or anything like that. Right. I mean, she's a very skilled campaigner. She's got the on the ground stuff down, of course, just, you know, through her years of activism. But it's almost like a, a, even a winning by default, so to speak. Right. Because she is good at the um, the sort of bread and butter stuff that goes along with campaigning and everyone else just doesn't seem to be able to kind of wrap their message into a, a cogent selling point that that seems like an alternative. Right. You've got you know, I, there's, I don't know. I don't know if I, I go with you on that. I, 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 I don't think she's winning by default. She, you're right. She's the well, only let one. Me re- let me rephrase. I'm talking answers, about in these forums. Yeah. But she, but she has a message and she's very strong in delivering it. I mean, look, what, what my favorite example from, from Mars was we said, what are you going to do to work across the aisle? And the first four people that answered, it was basically rainbows and unicorns. My personality is such that I get along with people. And we, and we interrupted and said, okay, the first four people, rainbows and unicorns, think about Mitch McConnell, think about McCarthy. That's who you have to work with. How are you going to do it? And we continued to get rainbows and unicorns, except for, except for a couple. And Nina Turner said, look, let's face it. They don't want to work with us. So I'm not going to abandon my principles to to reach out to them. We're going to go toe to toe and push for what we believe in. If there's an issue where we can work together, sure. But there aren't many. And I'm going there because I have a a set of political beliefs. That was strong. That, that, That was the message that I think voters want to hear. The rest, I mean, it was just silly the way they were talking about. And there was a doctor and says, I'm a healer and I, I know how to bring people together. And it's like, have you been watching what's gone on in Washington? Jeff Johnson said, you know, I worked with Republicans when I was there, but he did acknowledge that was a different kind of Republican. <laughs> so I, I thought she was a standout because she was strong. And as you said, because the others were so weak. Talk about some of the others. Did did Chantel Brown's responses surprise you? Uh, no, they didn't surprise me because I've heard them before so many times. And I, I think that's been one of her shortcomings is it's it's you know, she has talking points and they're, you know, they're arguably pretty strong talking points, too. Right. But the thing about talking points is you have to be able to deviate from them. You know, politicians who just stick to the talking points, you know, don't do that well. You have to be able to you know hit the curveball. You can't just be a straight fastball hitter. And you know, when you hear the same kind of talking points over and over and over, it just, it waters down the message, right? Because, you know, anyone who listens, you know, if, if someone listens to you once, like, yeah, they might be interested. If they listen to you twice, they're like, hmm, this sounds a little familiar. They listen to you three and four and five times, kind of like, well, I've heard all of this before. Like, is, is this really a plan or is this just kind of a, a crafted uh, sort of thing? Um, you know, I, I do think, and you know, this isn't to like just besmirch and say nobody else knows what they're doing. I, I do think that, there are some of the can, you know, let's be real here. Half a dozen of these candidates are, you know, don't have much of an idea. That's just kind of the reality of the situation when you have 13 and you have a very low um, threshold for petitions to get on the ballot. You're going to attract some some of those kind of candidates. I do think there are other candidates who do have a message, who do have something to say, but just haven't been able to craft it in what way or maybe they just don't have the resources or anything like that. And then I do think you have some kind of, uh, you know, what do you want to call it? Um, There's some people who think they're kind of owed the position, so to speak, right? Like they've been in politics, so they continue to be in politics. And I I, I think that that's been the case. But when when you look at like the the most frequent campaigners, you know, uh, Nina has stood out, like very clearly stood out. 
The other the other and, one I think stands out is Tariq Shabazz. Yeah, I would agree. Seven, and he he popped. I mean, he talked about issues. He he also said he didn't say it the way Nina Turner said it, but he did say, you know, look, the people down in Washington, they're 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 basically doing racist policies. So, you know, I'm going down there to stop that. I mean, so he was saying the same thing that she did, just in a different way. But you know, he talked about cybersecurity, which is actually an issue that Congress yeah. would deal with. And, um, and it was interesting. One of the other questions we asked him, you know, said, we said, you, you're as in this position, you're pretty much the democratic leader for the region. What would you do with that? And almost none of them offered an answer. I talk about talking points. That's mainly what we got. Yeah. It was, it was a lot of, uh, you know, oh, I recognize that this is really important. And as a, as a congressperson, I'm going to be part of that important. It's like, that's great. Okay. Everybody realizes that that's why the question gets asked, right? Like we know that the 11th, you know, Marsha Fudge for, was in a lot of ways, kind of like the, the political boss around here, right? Like a lot of things got done through her. A lot of things flowed through her, you know, she, and before you know, her she, was Stephanie Tubbs yeah. Jones. And before her was Lou Stokes, Stokes, which yeah. was interesting. Nina Turner and, I think Jeff Johnson both said they would once again create the caucus yes. that, that Lou Stokes had really made quite strong and it has not been what it is now. That's where a lot of political newcomers cut their teeth and became stronger. It'd be interesting to see if that is successful. Um, do, do you think there's any question on this one on who's going to win? You know, with 13 candidates, I don't think you can say for sure anything is going to happen because it, you know, Nobody thought of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was going to win her race, right? It was like it, it wasn't. It was, she was an afterthought, right? That said, I mean, it. I, I'm. I try to keep an open mind about things and try to think of every feasible scenario. And the scenarios are certainly dwindling where Nina Turner doesn't win. It just, you know, she's got the money, she's got the name ID, she's very clearly kind of showing herself to be head and shoulders above everyone else. Um, in terms of just the ability to campaign and having a message. I mean, I, you know, I went down to summit County for the uh, summit County black elected officials forum and uh, you know, they held this forum and basically 10 minutes after the forum got together and said, yeah, we're endorsing Nina Turner and did it right <laughs> okay. off the bat, you know, right. so hey, we, we got to wrap up what well, real quick. When's early voting start? Uh, early voting will start the first week of July. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Good. I got to save our last question for tomorrow because it's worth a long discussion. I'm not going to say what it is. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Seth. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. <laughs>